Well, it is an undeserved privilege to be up here again uh, uh, proclaiming God's word to you. Our passage tonight is indeed Philippians 1, uh, verses 27 to 30. Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. And as uh, Pastor Tony mentioned this morning, uh, there is a good deal of overlap in content between uh, what he talked about this morning and what we'll be looking at this evening. Uh, some differences, some major differences, um, but uh, a good deal of overlap. I, I trust the Spirit is doing something with that. Um, but I'm going to read the text and then uh, kind of give you the outline for the evening, and then we'll, we'll pray and jump into it. But uh, Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, this is the word of God. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I come, I'm sorry, so whether, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So sitting in Romans, uh, Roman custody, Paul tells the church at Philippi in verse 27 to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in a sense, this command is sort of a catch-all. It's a summary of Christian ethics. Everything that the Bible tells us to think or to feel or to do can be rolled up into this command, can be summarized in a sense as living worthy of the gospel. But this is a command that also has a number of special applications depending on the circumstances of life one finds themselves in. And in our particular text, this church at Philippi, like Paul, is undergoing suffering for the gospel. And so Paul gives this general command in verse 27, and then he gives it its special application uh, to the lives of those who are suffering for the gospel of the church at Philippi. And that, in a nutshell, is how we're going to divide up our time this evening. First, we're going to ask ourselves, what exactly does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel in general? And then having answered that, we will launch into what does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel in the face of persecution for the gospel? And what we'll see there is that Paul gives three directives, three orders, three ethics that kind of govern what it means to walk worthy in the light of gospel suffering. So that's our outline. That's what we're going to do this evening. Before we jump into it, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Oh, Lord. Again, it is a privilege to gather together as your church to hear you speak to us through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use uh, these, these, these stammering, poor, lisping lips, Lord, to, uh, to, to, to work wonderful things amongst your people, that these words would find fruitful soil, Lord, and that we'd all be encouraged to walk worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so our first task tonight is certainly, what does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel? And in simplest form, what verse 27 is saying is that there is an expectation set by the gospel with respect to our conduct. We who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ are to act in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel. 
And to illustrate that, I want you to imagine that tomorrow you go to your mailboxes, provided people still have mailboxes these days, and you pull out an envelope. And in that envelope is a card, and it is a beautiful card. It is on thick paper. It is handwritten with magnificent calligraphy. And it's not just gold-colored. It's embossed with actual gold. And what you have in your hand is an invitation to attend the coronation of King Charles in England in this upcoming May. That's what you got in your hand. And behind that beautiful invitation is pages of itinerary. It's every flight, every hotel, every uh, restaurant. Not only have you been invited, but they have taken care of every possible accommodation. You know where to go, where to show up. Everything has been paid for. Every flight is first class. Every meal is going to be delicious. You have nothing to do but to say yes and to go. And in addition to that, not only have you received this invitation and these gracious uh, arrangements, but apparently you're not just going to be kind of standing outside the church during the coronation. You have been invited as some sort of guest of honor. You're going to have a fairly prominent place in the coronation itself. And so what do you do? You would do what any sane person does. You would say yes. You would go, right? You would, you would take them up on it. You would get the free trip to England. You would go to the thing. And you, of course, being a reasonable, sensible person that you are, you would do a little research in advance. You would figure out, like, you know, what is the appropriate dress that you should wear? Is for guys, is it a suit? Is it a tuxedo? For women, what kind of formal wear is it? Whatever. You'd figure it out. You'd buy the dress or the suit, and you'd go. And you would, of course, make use of every accommodation in a respectful way. And on the day, you would show up dressed appropriately, you would show up at the appointed hour, and you would go to your appointed seat. And that's what you do. And right before the ceremony starts, you look up. You happen to look up, and you see me. And I'm there, and I'm waving at you like an idiot. I'm just, you know, hey, how you doing? And you're not entirely sure how I got in because I am dressed, let's just say, not super formally. Kind of went business casual. And uh, I, uh, I, I had a seat just like you, but um, I wanted a better view. So I kind of muscled my way through a bunch of people, and I'm standing in front, probably directly in front of some very important English noblemen, uh, and I'm getting the view that I want. And in come Charles to the church, and uh, I whip out a snack. And let's say it's a crunchy snack, like nachos, right? And I'm just chewing in the middle of the ceremony. Now, which of the two of us would you say was living up to the expectations set by the invitation, by the arrangements, by the ceremony, itself. It's certainly not me, is it? You knew that the graciousness of the invitation demanded that you should attend with some degree of humility. You didn't earn this. You're not a relative of the king. You're not some long-lost Scottish lord or lady. You didn't do some Nobel Prize winning, you know, a, a act of service that kind of merited an invite. This was an entirely gracious invitation you should have accepted with humility, and you did. You knew that the seriousness of the situation demanded that you show up and do what's expected of you with a certain amount of gravity and seriousness and, and to watch quietly. And you knew that, of course, that you were supposed to show up dressed a certain way, not just acting a certain way, but dressed a certain way. The kindness of the invitation, the graciousness and thoughtfulness of the arrangements and the event itself demanded of you certain behaviors. And you lived up to those things 
you lived up to the, the invitation that was extended by the king. You conducted yourself in a way that was appropriate to the event, whereas I clearly treated it with contempt. And that, brothers and sisters, is essentially what Paul is talking about in verse 27. To live worthy of the gospel is to live in a way that reflects the truths of the gospel. And just like an invitation from the English king to come to a ceremony carries with it certain expectations or demands on our conduct, so too does the unimaginable grace and glory that the gospel promises us through Jesus likewise create expectations on how we're supposed to live, those of us who've received it. For those who have trusted in Christ alone through faith and loan, who've been saved by grace alone, the gospel makes demands on how we're supposed to live. And if you just think for a couple of seconds about what the gospel says, think, think about what the gospel tells us who we were before we came to Christ. The gospel tells us that we were, by nature, rebels, enemies of God, that we hated him, that we loved, and that we gladly participated in unspeakable forms of depravity and sin and idolatry. And if you chafed right then and there about me saying that you once engaged in unspeakable forms of evil, that's just a remnant of the evil left in us that we, we don't even want to admit just how bad we were. Everything that we did pre-Christ was worthy of an eternity of death and hell. We would rather roll around in the filth of our sin than submit to the perfect and life-giving commands of God. And yet, yet, the gospel says that we were given unimaginable mercy and grace. We were loved so much, so passionately that God put his son to death, despite who we were. We were loved so fully that he heaped on Jesus every unspeakable, evil, vile thought and sin and action, everything we have done and are doing and will do. And Jesus paid in that same love for us. He paid it in full. In full. And just think about it for a second. He paid it in full. Everything that I said, it deserves infinite wrath. And yet, somehow, Jesus satisfied all of that on the cross for us in unimaginable love. And the gospel tells us that in that unthinkable love, we weren't just forgiven. We were joined to Christ. We were made a part of him. We were adopted as sons and daughters. We are now new creations. We are more than what we were before. We are now heirs of the entirety of creation. Everything is Christ and we belong to Christ. And ergo, everything belongs to us as well. And the gospel tells us that he is coming back, not just to wipe away every tear, not just to reward every faithful act of service, not just to pay back those who have hated and persecuted and attacked the church, not just to rid us of indwelling sin or give us new glorified bodies or a holy new Jerusalem to live in, but to spend eternity with us in fullest fellowship. He is coming back to give us the gift of himself for eternity. We who deserved unending wrath, the gospel says, now get to get the ultimate prize, unending enjoyment of God himself. That's what the gospel says. And if the gospel says those things, if they're true and they are, those truths sort of demand or they set a certain expectation for how we are to live if we truly believe those things, don't they? For example, if someone comes to Christ for forgiveness, doesn't that 
demand that they reject, however imperfectly, that they reject continuing in the very sins that they repented of? If we are adopted sons and daughters of God, should we not live in a way that expresses the humility of being elevated to such an exalted position? If God loved us so much enough to do all of this, should not our response be to love him back with all of our heart and mind and body and soul? And if God loved the person, not just us, but the person sitting next to us with the same redeeming covenantal love, doesn't that mean that we should love them as beloved children of God? And if we have been loved by God when we hated him, doesn't that mean that we should, as we love our neighbor and coworker and whoever else who is not in Christ, even if they hate us, even if they persecute, even if we suffer or, or, or get taken advantage of, as Pastor Tony mentioned this morning, shouldn't we love them nonetheless? Doesn't the gospel demand that? If God took on frail humanity, suffered, and died, if he did that, then shouldn't we follow in the same example? And putting ourselves, uh, our gifts, our time, our talents, and our money, uh, and using those things for more than just our own pleasure and benefits. Doesn't the gospel demand that if God did all of this for us, that our lives be characterized not just by love for God, but by thankfulness and worship as well? I hope the point isn't lost. The, the truths and the realities and the promises and the blessings of the gospel, they, they, they create expectations for, for how those who belong to Christ are to think, are to feel, and are to live. And just like the example of the king's coronation, we kind of have two paths that we can walk down, don't we? We can either live in keeping with the expectations set by the truths of the gospel, or we can be like me at the coronation and treat them in a way that, that belittles the promises and saving work of God, or worse, treats them with neglect and even contempt. Those are the two options that all Christians have before them at all times. Those are the only two options that we have, and every second, every day, we are either living worthy of the gospel, living worthy of the calling that we have been given in Christ, or we're not. Now, that may sound daunting. Yeah. Uh, that may sound like that's a, that's a high bar and a, and, a, and, a, and a big challenge or a scary obligation. But the good news about the good news is that the gospel both makes demands of our conduct, but it also empowers us to fulfill those demands. The gospel, yes, by implication, tells us how to live, but the gospel also makes us want to live up to them. When we think about how much God loves us, for example, it is natural then that we are stirred up to love him back. And, that, and that's you know, what we saw this morning with Pastor Tony. He spent a lot of time expounding the joy that we have through the gospel, in the gospel. And, and how many of us hearing about the love that God has for us, how many of us wanted to immediately put that into practice and to follow suit? That's what the gospel does. It, it doesn't just doesn't just create expectations or, 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 or set demands by implication on our lives. It empowers us to go live those things out. The gospel demands, but the gospel empowers. And so to live worthy of the gospel is not to make a list of do's and don'ts, uh, a list of, of, of commandments to go follow and grit our teeth and to do them, to live worthy of the gospel because God has given us promises that empower our main job is to embrace the gospel with faith on a daily basis. Our job is to fight to keep the gospel as our most cherished possession, to meditate on the good news daily, 
and to embrace each promise and offer of grace with faith. And we will obey verse 27 and, and walk worthy of the gospel when we keep the message of the gospel in front of our face at all times. And that's in a nutshell, what Paul is telling us to do in verse 27, what it means to live worthy of the gospel. It means to live up to the expectations set by the gospel by every second of every day, putting our whole faith in the gospel and letting that empower the obedience that we are called to. This is, of course... A command that, again, I think is hopefully clear, can be applied in a variety of different situations. What it means to walk worthy of the gospel in a difficult work situation is different than what it means to walk worthy of the gospel in a, you know, on a Sunday morning at church. Different situations, different application points. And after having generally commanded the church to walk worthy of the gospel, Paul again begins to make a, a very specific application, one in which I think we can stand to be reminded of in our day and age. Because as we see our culture taking more and more anti-biblical stances on things, as we see our culture more and more labeling biblical truth as hateful or even violence, it appears that a persecution isn't terribly far off, in addition to whatever persecution we might face as we preach the gospel individually in our own lives. So we can benefit to hear how Paul directs this church to honor the gospel in their lives as they suffer for it, which is our second topic this evening, living worthy of the gospel in the face of gospel persecution. And as we transition into that topic, it is clear from the rest of our passage that this church is undergoing some sort of persecution. Look at verse 29. He says the church is undergoing suffering. In verse 28, he says not only do they have opponents, but whatever they're suffering because of these opponents is enough to make them uh, tempted to shrink back in fear. And he says in verse 30, this is clearly persecution over the gospel. This is not about their own faults or, or, or bad behavior. He says, as he sits in prison for the gospel himself, that the church, he tells the church that the conflict they're experiencing is the same conflict that he has. And this makes sense. We should remember so far in this letter that Paul has portrayed this church as an enthusiastic supporter of missions and evangelism. They have been partners in Paul's work since the day the church was formed. This is a church that has given for the cause, a church that would be saturating their region uh, with the gospel through their own personal evangelism and preaching. And apparently, in doing so, they, like Paul, have prompted a reaction from the enemy. And that also should not be surprising to us. The gospel is not just a message. The gospel is a spirit-empowered weapon of war. It is the means by which God raids the kingdom of darkness ruled over by Satan. It is the tool that the risen king uses to advance his dominion. And when the gospel starts upending the devil's domain, you can expect a response. You can expect a response. And in this case, the devil has gone with a physical assault. He is looking to stop the preaching of the gospel by attacking those who are proclaiming Christ. And so Paul wants his church to not only walk worthy of the gospel in general, he wants them to walk worthy of the gospel in their specific situation of suffering for the gospel. And in telling this church how to do that, again, he gives three directives, three simple, easy directives. And the first one 
is in the face of gospel persecution. Living worthy of the gospel means leaning into the gospel together. If we want to walk worthy of the gospel in the face of gospel persecution, our job is to lean in to the gospel. This is the main thrust of what Paul says. The church is to lean in, they're to double down and to invest more in the gospel and missions. This church's job, and and by extension, our job in the face of, of suffering and persecution is to stand firm, unafraid, and put our hands to the plow and continue preaching and defending the faith. Look at, look at again at, at verses 27 to 28. Paul says, Whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He wants them to stand firm, to be unafraid, and to strive for the gospel. In other words, a church facing persecution over the truth lives in a worthy way when they unite behind the gospel, bold and unafraid, and continue preaching the very thing that is causing the conflict in the first place. I could also say that we act in an unworthy way if, when we are attacked because of the gospel, we shrink back from proclaiming the very thing that saved us and the very thing that can save others. And we should linger just for a moment on the words not frightened in verse 28. This is critical to see because when we preach the gospel, the enemy reacts with persecution. That's what we're going to be tempted to do. We're going to be tempted to, to shrink back, to be afraid. We're going to be tempted to stop talking altogether, to make excuses for why we don't bring up the gospel in conversation. And I don't need to do a straw poll to ask who's guilty of that. I'll certainly volunteer myself. We may be tempted to make the gospel more accessible, to blunt the offense of the cross, maybe to reframe or rephrase things in a way to take away the clear demand of what Jesus calls us uh, to in the cross, namely to repent and to trust. But Paul doesn't do that. He, he knows that the gospel is an offensive message, period. He knows that the only way, the only way to make the gospel more, ex- to, to make the gospel more acceptable is to compromise it, to water it down or to change it altogether. To make the gospel inoffensive is to make it ineffective, And if the only ways to prevent the assault of the enemy are to either stop talking or to water down the cross, those are no options for a faithful church to follow. And so Paul's message is really simple. Keep preaching. Don't do anything different. Stand there and keep preaching. If we want to walk worthy of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we must steady ourselves, put fears aside, avoid trying to avoid the conflict caused by the gospel, and continue to preach Christ as the only hope for a fallen world. And that's the first directive Paul gives, to lean into the gospel. Now, his second directive is very much helpfully related. It's to lean into the gospel together, to lean into the gospel together. This is not meant to be a solo thing. We are not meant to do this on our own. Paul tells the church at Philippi, and by extension us, to do it together. They are to be standing firm in one spirit. They are to be striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. You know, in, in movies, we see these, uh, these, these lone wolf heroes go out and take on what looks to be like entire battalions and armies. You know what happens when, in real life when that happens? They die. They die real fast. You do not want to be a soldier by yourself on the front lines. We need fellow soldiers. And let's, let's also be honest with ourselves here. How many of us shrink back from preaching Christ 
without any persecution whatsoever, at the mere threat of someone not liking us, or the embarrassment of it. If that's, if that's our lot, if that's who we are, we need each other when the world comes after us. We need all the help we get when the enemy comes after us. We cannot do this on our own. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need support from one another because when the world comes at us, the consequences can be painful. We can lose friends, families, jobs, possessions, even our very lives. There will be real, tangible needs that need filling. We need each other to be examples. We need to see the the bold examples of those who are suffering persecution or pushback or consequences and yet continue to preach Christ so that we may be encouraged to be bold ourselves, to remember that fear is unworthy of the gospel. We need to encourage and admonish and rebuke one another. If we are afraid or if we're struggling, we need someone to come to our sides and either say soft words or hard words, depending on where our hearts are at. And we need to be praying for one another as well. We need to be praying certainly for the lost in each other's lives and the opportunities that we individually have. But we also need to be praying that we are bold in our evangelism. That kind of prayer is indispensable to the proclamation of the gospel. And the point, brothers and sisters, of course, is that if living worthy of the gospel means leaning into the gospel, it means leaning into the gospel together. We are each other's support system. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And and, and we who are in Christ are the body of Christ. We are connected to Jesus and to each other in a profound way. And so, yes, if we're going to live worthy of the gospel in the face of persecution, we need to do it together. Because if we don't, we will crumble. Now, Paul's third directive, and where we're going to end tonight, this is less of an order and more of a perspective. He adds a bit of a helpful perspective to those who are in the midst of persecution, who are leaning into the gospel together. So he tells them to lean into the gospel together in humble gratitude. To lean to the gospel together in humble gratitude. Paul tells us in verses 28 to 30, that walking worthy in the face of persecution is actually an encouragement for our souls. He says there uh, this, referring to the persecution of the church, it's a, it's a clear sign to, to them, to those who are persecuting, of their destruction. But it's also a clear sign, he says, of the church's salvation and that from God. And he explains, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What Paul's getting at here is that gospel opposition is in a sense to be expected, but it's also revealing. When the world reacts against the message of the gracious death of its rightful Lord with violence and hate, that reaction declares for anyone watching what the spiritual state is of those who are opposing the gospel. It reveals just who people are and just whose side they are on. And you're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. You're either the seed of Eve or you are seed of the serpent. You're either children of God or children of Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral camp. There's no in-between. And the gospel makes that clear. So yes, when the gospel is preached and it's met with violence, it is a clear sign to those who oppose it of their destruction. But as that happens, for those who are preaching Christ, for those who are suffering for the gospel, for those who are doing so and leaning into it together, it demonstrates their sincere faith in it. 
Not infallibly, of course, but it's evidence that we believe what we preach. Just as if you saw someone preach the gospel, uh, be met with persecution, and then abandon the church and run away, it's probably evidence that they may not believe what they were preaching. When we're faced with spouses who are willing to leave us or children who want nothing to do with us, or we face the loss of possessions or income or freedom or our lives, and we stay, nonetheless, I'm still going to preach Christ. That means something. That gives evidence that the Spirit of God is within us because God is the giver not only of our faith, but also of our perseverance too. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 29 when he says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe but also suffer for his sake. I'll call your attention to that word, granted. It is the basic word for gift. It's the basic word to be given something. Suffering for Christ is being described by Paul as a gift that God gives. And I don't think he means the actual blows of the enemy, you know, like someone's, I don't think he means the rocks that hits Paul in the head, that's the gift. I think he's assuming that this church will persevere, and that the whole situation, the persecution and their persevering, leaning into the gospel together, that's the gift. Suffering by implication, and by implication, persevering and suffering for Christ's sake is a gift because it reassures us about the sincerity of our faith. It helps demonstrate that we didn't just sign on to this whole Christian thing for health and wealth and prosperity. We didn't just sign on because it's what we learned as kids. We didn't just sign on because we were lonely someday and somebody had the right message. We mean what we're preaching. And as such, gospel persecution, as we endure it, as we not only lean into the gospel despite persecution, as we do so together as a church, we should do it seeing it as a gracious gift from God that encourages our souls. And in briefest form, that's our, that's our text tonight. And I, I want to conclude by simply saying, we, we may not have been personally invited by the, the, the king of England to attend his coronation, but we who are in Christ have been forgiven, justified, adopted into the family of the king of the universe. And I pray that we, we cherish these truths that we let them empower us to walk worthy in our daily lives and in the face of whatever persecution or suffering that we may be experiencing as we preach Christ or may yet happen to the church. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that as much as we, uh, I hope that we, we are walking worthy, it's probably good to admit to ourselves just how often we also walk in an unworthy manner, maybe even today. Which is why I think it's you know, we, we should be so grateful for the institution of the Lord's Supper and, and the testimony it gives to the forgiving grace of God. What we have before us tonight is a tangible reminder of the gospel itself and an encouragement from God, as, we, as, he, as you heard from me, to keep the gospel right in front of our eyes at all times. So maybe we eat and drink tonight with a renewed appreciation for the gospel, and may it spur us to live worthy tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your grace. While it is a high bar, Lord, to live worthy of the incredible blessings you've given us in Jesus Christ, an insurmountable uh, of duty, to be sure, it's nonetheless a, 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 a gift that you've given and, and something that we can do in and through the grace you give us through the promises of the gospel itself. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to be a people who 
really focus in on each of the blessings and the promise you give us, that we would appropriate those by faith, that we would cherish those, that we would turn those back to praise to you. And that as we, as we seize them in, in, in belief, I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to abound in a desire to serve, to obey, to live up to that calling. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to do so and wisdom to, to know how to apply this in our particular set and circumstances. And I pray, Lord, that one of the, the big focuses would be our, our preaching of the gospel. And if that were, Lord, to result in persecution or pain, even in jokes or mocking or exclusions or missed opportunities, even, even light forms like that, Lord, I pray that you would grant us faithful perseverance, that you would cause us to lean together as a church, support one another in it, and that we would do so knowing that our faith and our perseverance is a gift from you, and that even suffering for Christ is an encouragement to our souls. And I ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.